It's time for The Outspoken Cyclist, your weekly conversation about bicycles, cyclists, trails, travel, advocacy, the bike industry, and much, much more. You can subscribe to our weekly podcast at OutspokenCyclist.com or through your favorite podcatching app to listen anytime. Now here's your host, Diane Jenks. Welcome to The Outspoken Cyclist. I'm your host, Diane Jenks, and this is our show for January 15th, 2022. In an unprecedented move, yeah, I got to use that word, even though I believe it's about the most overused word in our lexicon these days, I am offering up two separate podcasts this week. Yep, I had two great interviews, and rather than one really long one, I thought I'd offer two shorter shows with two extremely extremely diverse topics, and they would be more interesting, and I get to talk to you twice in one week. So the second episode this week will launch on Wednesday. Today, however, we mosey on over to Lisbon, Portugal. I wish it was in person, but alas, that is not possible. Scott Shepard is the CCO and CPO of Assistabi. Assistabi is a relatively new startup company that uses AI to optimize public transport and multimodal systems. Assistabi and Scott are looking at just that right nudge, as Scott calls it, that will make it easy, convenient, and desirable to not get behind the wheel of your car every time you go out and instead begin to rely on more convenient, less expensive, and cleaner transportation. We will explore mobility and transportation from the perspective of using digital data to make it easier and more efficient to travel by bike and public transportation. Our conversation covers much more than that, expanding on what traditional thoughts might be about urban planning to what Scott now calls decarbonization. Hi, Scott. Welcome to The Outspoken Cyclist. Thanks for being my guest today. How is Lisbon? Oh, it's lovely as always. Oh, my gosh. It's uh, sunny today, but a little chilly. Can't complain. Uh, But uh, yeah, we're enjoying the the middle of winter, although winter isn't quite what it is in other parts of the U.S. or Canada. So yeah, I mean, everything's relative, right? (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. You're a little chilly, so it isn't 12 degrees like it is here in Cleveland. Uh, 12 Celsius, not 12 Fahrenheit. (laughs) (laughs) Slightly different. (laughs) Slightly different, exactly. (laughs) Well, so um, I'd like to know about your background and how you came to work with um, the company you're working with, Assistabi, and what you're doing right now. Um, I have such an abiding interest in in the way urban planning has changed in the past 12 years since I started my podcast. Yeah, so I am an urban planner. I... um, Received my uh, bachelor's in uh, geography and cartography from the University of Vermont, so on the East Coast. Um, then I got my master's city planning from San Diego State University in California. And uh, my background was in kind of mapping geography as well as geospatial sciences. And then when I got my master's degree, I started really getting deep into urbanism, issues of land use, issues of development and urbanization. And that's where I kind of... Um, Point of my career towards urban planning, and eventually it migrated into mobility and transportation. So uh, my career trajectory, working about 20 plus years in the U.S. before relocating to Europe about uh, four years ago here to Lisbon, has been kind of between the public sector, the private sector, and consulting, but really focused on data, focused on movement, and focused on innovation and how 
cities can really uh, utilize mobility as the common thread for now as we focus on sustainability and as we focus on issues related to COVID and how we move about the city for leisure, for work, and for uh, critical services. So it's proven to be a career path that has been uh, not direct. It's been a very kind of taken twists and turns, but it's always stayed kind of rooted towards, I would say, geography, data, as well as cities. And that, that's been my kind of uh, passion and my interest. Wow, it sounds really interesting, actually. So Assistabee, what is the company and, and what is their goal and how what do you do for them? Okay, so Assistabee is a new, we've been around about a year and a half now, so we're about 10 people. Uh, we are a Portuguese-Norwegian startup uh, based in Bergen, Norway, with an office here in Lisbon. And we are building out a AI slash machine learning data optimization tool for public transit authorities to better optimize, look at their current um, public transport networks, uh, better optimize kind of short-term changes related to their bus, tram, metro, and then better plan out, uh, I would say, future routes to look at optimizing cost, look at um, minimizing their environmental impact, and then aligning with the long-range urban planning process. So we seek to kind of build out a platform that can be used across agencies as a collaboration tool. So we really want to affect policy change and position public transport, public transportation for American listeners as really the core uh, backbone of urban mobility. And our tool set using big data and AI is really what we think is the way to go. So something that comes up for me right away is sort of this pushback against public transport with COVID, you know, that you don't want that many people uh, moving mm -hmm. in the same vehicle, like a bus or a subway, even though I, I, people are now getting vaccinated when they are and should, my opinion, and masked and everything else. How has the pandemic impacted some of the work you've been doing? Well, it depends on what market we're talking about. So uh, yeah, in the U.S., I would say that there was a clear mandate or a policy from uh, you know, public operators to basically not use transit or to minimize capacity or occupancy on buses. And that we saw that probably for the first, I would say, six or seven months during the pandemic, probably starting in March of 2020 through that summer. Although we saw kind of an uptick in ridership towards the end of 2020, continuing through 2021. However, here in Europe, uh, there wasn't quite as much of a diktat from PTAs, public transport authorities, to avoid transit more, tr to best try, try to regulate the seating and uh, try to regulate, um, I would say, spacing at stations, platforms, etc. So it was a bit less of kind of a um, prevention of using public transit here in Europe to more kind of ensuring social distancing. However, what we've seen is a consistent trend on both sides of the Atlantic, or certainly here in Europe, uh, towards almost a, a, a normalization of ridership, we're almost at about 70 to 80% of um, pre-2019 levels. So it's been quite a success story in terms of, now these numbers are obviously pre-Omicron. So now we're dealing with the fifth or the sixth wave or whatever you want to call it. Now, I guess they're calling it the sixth wave here in Europe, but anyway. Um, so let's say as we move up until like November of 2021, Again, we were about 70 to 80% of normal levels. 
in terms of ridership for most European cities. Now, that number is obviously a bit lower in uh, US and Canada, but that speaks to the central role that uh, public transit provides for, for essential services, for movement, as well as for a return to normal. So using all these cliches, I apologize, but really as we start kind of coming back into uh, managing the risk, whether or not we are in a wave or we're in a decline of COVID, um, the, the level risk tolerance has increased, meaning that ridership has increased and the realization that we cannot all use our own personal automobiles, that it plays an essential role, although it's fully impacted by the built environments. This is where urban planning kicks in. It's impacted by population density. It's impacted by land use. It's impacted by street networks and walkability. So all these interplay and really that provides the best, I would say, utilization of public transit, whether or not you're in North America or in, you're in Europe. Let me take a moment to reintroduce you. We're speaking with Scott Shepard. He is uh, an expert in urbanism and mobility. I, I picked that up. <laughs> and we're talking about the, his company. He's, it's a new company, Assist to Be. We're going to give you all that information at the end of our conversation today. So I want to know about micromobility. I look at cycling yeah. as micromobility. Yeah we see a very small percentage of cycling for transport either to work or to the grocery or whatever it is here in the U S relative to where you are maybe, or relative to what you see out of the U S but Mm -hmm. how does your work sort of juxtapose itself into cycling because walking and cycling to me are sort of the same kind of micro mobility. So this is where we get into the concept of uh, multimodality, to use another cliche term. So how can we position movement across the the urban landscape, uh, leveraging multiple modes to provide a much more sustainable, active alternative to single car usage and ownership? So that is really part and parcel with the role of public transit, public transport, we can use these terms interchangeably, and how micromobility or certainly cycling as an active form of mobility or active transportation can complement public transport and vice versa. In terms of linking multimodal trips across the urban landscape so that basically a component of a trip can be taken from A to B within a bus, a tram or metro. And then a bicycle can also be used as a complement, either as a multimodal station transfer point or if cycles are allowed on trains, rolling stock to uh, accompany the uh, rider along their journey. So really what I like to see is either whether we utilize Digital technologies such as mobility as a service or other journey planners or multimodal apps that guide users throughout their journey saying that you can cycle maybe one or two miles to your end destination, but perhaps maybe five miles of that can be taken via public transit. This is served as, let's say, a nudge. So this is using social psychology. This is nudging people out of cars to make it as convenient as possible so that this becomes part of their daily routine. But again, this is only in theory and concept because all I've mentioned is the modes available. So you have a bicycle, you have a tram car or a metro car or a bus, 
and you have the ability to make a transfer. But this now also begs the question, what is the physical infrastructure to support this multimodal journey? So the physical infrastructure, this is where this kicks in now. And I think this would be really interesting for you know, American listeners is the availability and the ubiquity of bike lanes or of you know, cycle lanes and whether or not, well, what is the quality, the linkage and the connections of bike lanes to these transfer points, as well as how do they uh, interplay with other mixed forms of traffic? Are they segregated bike lanes? Are they just painted strips? Or are they really just a very kind of discontinuous, uh, you know, set of, I would say, uh, segments that really uh, make for a multimodal journey super difficult and super challenging? And I think we kind of already know the answer to that based upon what city and region we live in. But really, that it's an essential part of the mix because we have to look at this as a, a physical component, a digital component and then a behavioral component. All three pillars fit into this, you know, perfect multimodal world, you know, this nirvana, which may or may not exist, well, unless we're in, I guess, Denmark or Netherlands, but uh, it doesn't even exist that much here in uh, Portugal. Certainly in Lisbon, we just hosted a few months ago in September, Diane, you're probably aware, the uh, Velocity Conference. So uh, Lisbon at the uh, International uh, Fair, which also hosts Web Summit, they hosted the Velocity Conference for the first time. And they tried to position Portugal as well as the city of Lisbon, the capital, as a real, uh, I would say, incubator, not only for the bicycle manufacturing industry, but also for a test case or demonstration of how one uh, COVID era physical investments in infrastructure such as pop-up bike lanes, such as Corona pathways are already starting to take root in Southern Europe in a culture. If we look at Spain, if we look at Italy, if we look at Greece, if we look at Portugal, it's much more of an auto-centric culture in Southern Europe than in Northern Europe. So this is quite a sea change. This is a paradigm shift, meaning that this adoption of cycling and active transportation, certainly here in Portugal, but even in Spain and other countries is a real positive outcome of COVID. I would think the lockdowns, um, the environmental concerns, as well as the social concerns are kind of pushing and nudging people towards active transportation. And if we look at a silver lining to this cloud we've all been dealing with the last two years, that's one of them. And I'm really happy to see that because I see the bike lanes all over the place in Lisbon. And it's a huge change from when I moved here in 2017. Huge change. So do you think it's going to be sustainable going forward? So once you get these lanes and once people start riding, will they continue to ride or will they sort of fall back into their old ways? Or will you continue to also build out that infrastructure? So um, it depends on uh, where we're looking at. So certainly um, there's been a few areas that we've seen a bit of pushback to the pop-up bike lanes in the COVID era you know, active transportation um, emergency measures, such as in Berlin, such as in London, we have lobbies that are trying to push back and take back the lanes for cars, right? So we've seen that, but I would say we have a framework in place here in Europe. I'm gonna speak about Europe and then I'll speak about, you know, California, North America for a second here. So here in Europe, we have a comprehensive urban planning policy framework that is centered on mobility as the common thread for all forms of sustainable development. 
and you may be aware of this, it's called the Sustainable Urban Mobility Planning Process, the SUMP process. And this is mandated by the European Commission. So each region and territory has to prepare a SUMP. So it's like a comprehensive long range transportation plan that an MPO or a uh, council of governments in the US prepares, very similar but it uses transportation mobility as that common thread for sustainable development, for land use, for urbanization, et cetera. Mobility is that lightning rod. So that is being aligned with these COVID era, like we like to call these emergency measures that they will become permanent. So these cycle lanes are only going to be expanded over time. And uh, what began as kind of emergency measures, open streets, you know, temporary pop-up bike lanes are now being part of the permanent physical infrastructure. So we're only seeing a build-out. I mean, for example, we see what's happening in Paris with the 15-minute cities. We see what's happening in many other uh, European cities, the region-wide uh, bike network in Milan, in Lombardy, in Northern Italy. Um, we see all throughout Europe, a lot of these temporary interventions, and that's the general change happening right now is temporary is becoming permanent in Europe. So we're not seeing a blowback of the uh, cycle lanes going back to cars, but it's more of a mandate to permanent infrastructure. Now, if I look at many US cities, unfortunately, what be, what started as temporary, I would say pilot projects. So we kind of use this term pilot project very loosely in the United States, but for good reason, because these pilot projects basically are terminal. And, you know, they're only mandated for about six months. They lose funding and then they revert back to the automobile. So I don't want to really call out any specific US cities, but I've seen quite a bit across the landscape of uh, open streets shutting down, going back to cars, and some of these temporary bike lanes just basically uh, reverting back to on-street parking. So I'm not saying that that's across the landscape, but there's a bit of a cultural uh, difference, plus there's a different comprehensive planning framework that aligns with public policy to direct capital investment towards more of a permanence versus kind of a temporary, you know, experimentation. I hope that answered your question. It does answer my question. Let's take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit about AI. I want to know about that and climate and a couple of other things. We're speaking with Scott Shepard. He is an urbanism and mobility expert. He is living in Lisbon where it's warm as opposed to here in Northeast Ohio. (laughs) We're gonna take a short break. We'll be right back. You're listening to The Outspoken Cyclist. We are back on The Outspoken Cyclist. I'm Diane Jenks. We're speaking with Scott Shepard. Uh, he is in Lisbon. His The company he works for is Assistby. We will give you that information at the end of our conversation. We're talking about urbanism, mobility, and how somewhat the U.S. differs from this overall plan. When I like the idea of having an overall plan, do you think some of that lack of planning on a on a large scale in the US has to do with just the size of the country and the distances people would, might have to go is that a, is that a reason whether it's good or bad 
Yeah, I mean, there's always a physical component and that's, you know, looking at just, again, the built environment and what we have, you know, what is the land use and how that has evolved over the last, you know, 250 years or maybe 300, 400 years if we look at the colonial era. So I I like to trace it all the way back to the early 1600s. We have to really start at the core and then see how the the continent expanded over time. So to answer the question, that's probably at least half the equation. But the other half is political and cultural too. The political and cultural aspect also um, factors in quite heavily because that uh, relates back to our very, um, I would say, uh, political structure as a, um, you know, as the United States is rooted in federalism and having a a competing uh, source of power between states and the federal government, which competes in terms of uh, mandating how uh, resources are allocated and in terms of the control at the local level for governance and for land use. So specifically what I mean by that is that that really affects decisions made at the local and regional level may or may not be consistent across the board, regardless of whether or not we have higher density cities, medium or low density cities, the political framework, the structure in place of federalism in the United States really provides much more of a loose, inconsistent manner for urban planning that is not necessarily as coherent when you try to, let's say, develop a framework that is nationwide, such as high-speed rail, or such as transportation policy, et cetera, et cetera. While we've had many different examples of the Federal Interstate Act, as well as other uh, investments in our national infrastructure, uh, transcontinental railroad, canals, et cetera, that were done much more at a national scale. I would say as the nation has evolved over time, it's become a a bit more weakened, a bit more laissez-faire and a bit hands-off. So for example, like the United States Department of Transportation will issue uh, policy guidelines on active transportation or issue uh, discretionary grant funds as part of the most recent $1 trillion uh, infrastructure bill. But again, it cannot mandate where the uh, capital investments are going to because again, it comes back to the structure of federalism that state-based departments of transportation hold the coffers. They hold the treasury and they make the final decisions. So this basically plays into the urban planning process and how our built environment and our physical infrastructure can accommodate and affect more sustainable outcomes or just simply build more highways with a bunch of U.S. uh, infrastructure funding. So, you know, this is why certain states across America are going to take a different shape and form in regions based upon the outcomes of the recently passed uh, federal stimulus bill. That's that's the bottom line. Yeah, that's my fear that we're not going to see the kind of uh, infrastructure that we were hoping to see for whatever reason. I want to I want to go back to something right at the beginning of what we were talking about, and that is AI. How is Mm. artificial intelligence, machine learning going to sort of play into public transportation? And and will that somehow affect uh, cycling, too? Yeah, so uh, we like to look at AI or machine learning, kind of use these terms interchangeably, as a tool 
to better enable public transit authorities at the local or regional level to make more informed decisions with a limited amount of financial and human resources. So what we're trying to do here is through our tool set at Assisted B specifically to plug ourselves, um, is look at how this kind of platform can bridge the digital divide. Because again, we're, we're mainly focused on small to mid-sized transit agencies that have limited staff, limited resources and limited kind of digital capabilities to one kind of bring them up to a level so that they have the ability to assess or uh, you know analyze their current bus network or train network, and then kind of make short-term changes or predictions based upon the data that's available using AI and machine learning. And then also look at being able to best plan out future growth scenarios, whether or not they expand their bus or rail networks, or if they just mainly wanna look at demographic population growth, future urbanism scenarios. And this is where urban planning kind of interplays with land use and with public transit and how they can all work together uh, in unison. So AI and machine learning is really basically a means to an end. It's a tool that can basically help automate the process. It can provide either manual scenarios for growth or provide more optimized and automatically generated prediction analyses, which give kind of a quick snapshot of what the network and what the region could look like based upon different parameters that you can basically set or customize. And you can basically kind of customize your own key performance indicators and dashboards. And just to kind of round out the discussion, AI is really going to serve as that foundational element for a collaboration platform across agencies. So this is so that the finance department can have a meaningful discussion with human resources and with service planners and with the executive suite so that they're all on the same page and they're not only reliant on the traditional schedulers or service planners in a public transit organization, but all levels of operational governance can have a view in terms of what the network is and how that fits into the larger equation of urban planning and development. Okay. I think I understood most of that. <laughs> might, might be a little bit above my head. Yeah. A AI to bridge the digital divide. That's the bottom line. Okay. There you go. That's pretty, that's pretty <laughs> succinct. I so, should have just said that. <laughs> no, no, that's okay. I, I got a lot out of that. There's, there's just so many more elements. You know, when I think of urban planning, you think of somebody sitting there going, what are the streets going to look like? What are the paths yeah. going to look like? Where should we put crosswalks? Where should we put yeah. parking structures? And and I know that that's all changing. And I think that's a good thing, that there's a different look at urban planning than there was 20 years ago, even 10 years ago. How is mm -hmm. climate playing into all of this? So what I like to use uh, is the term uh, in the kind of the urban planning and mobility sector, as you mentioned, climate, or even more interesting is decarbonization. Uh -huh. So how can we decarbonize? How can we clean the mobility sector? Or how can we utilize the insights, the data insights, the technologies, as well as the policy tools to help make mobility more sustainable 
and decarbonize going forward. And how do we do that? We do that through multiple means. We do that through modal shift, through getting people out of their own automobiles into shared mobility. But also not only that, we look at different forms of shared mobility that have the lowest carbon impact. And one of those, of course, is public transit. So we kind of, I think there's like a pyramid diagram. I've seen it either in the American Public Transit Association or UITP, the the International Association of um, Public Transit Authorities based in Brussels. And it's kind of a, a pyramid uh, matrix of you know, the different modes of mobility. At the very top of the pyramid or the, the smallest um, impact, which should be part of sustainable urban governance and sustainable policy would be single car ownership because those generate the biggest carbon footprint per capita. And at the very bottom, of course, at the pyramid, at the very base level is public transit because it basically transports the greatest amount of passengers in the smallest footprint. So if you can think of one bus capacity holding 60 to 70 people versus one person per automobile, 60 cars strung along a highway, and you see that kind of graphical image, you really think of that impact of transportation on the environment and transportation on climate change and how decarbonization policies can leverage the technologies and the means we have right now to make a meaningful impact, at least as we emerge post-COVID and as we try to align with more sustainable travel patterns in the next 5, 10, 15 years, and certainly in the next eight years because we have a race to hit our climate targets, as we've seen in COP26 in Glasgow, Scotland, a few months ago and others. And it was really mandated by many of the member states and many different policy committees that transportation and mobility is one of the key measures for hitting our climate targets in the future. Now, having said that though, and an article I just wrote recently was that unfortunately, even in our US infrastructure bill, and not only at COP26, there was not as much of a strong emphasis on active transportation. The conference was almost relatively si uh, silent on cycling and walking, COP26, and they had very minimal mention, although there was one session on public transit, but there was an overemphasis on electric vehicles. So what we're seeing is just a shift from internal combustion engines, single car ownership, to single car ownership of EVs. Now that is really not going to move the needle enough if we look at climate change and decarbonization of the transportation sector. So we got to look at shared mobility. We have to look at active transportation and public transportation, but not mutually exclusive. All these different modes complement one another. And this is part of that multimodal landscape that I was speaking about previously. Well, it's kind of Concerning to me, the very little was talked about other than switching from gas vehicles, you know, uh, fossil fuel vehicles to e-vehicles. There's there's a cost to that, too. And so even e-bikes, you know, there's there's the whole battery system with e-bikes. So if you're looking at that pyramid where you've got the single car at the top and maybe the, the larger transport options at the bottom, where does biking and walking come in, if anywhere? 
Well, uh, biking and walking certainly come in towards the bottom of the pyramid, towards the most sustainable, I mean, the, the lowest kind of uh, footprint impact. Active transportation uh, really interplays well with public transit. And it's really kind of, uh, they're, they're, um, they're not mutually exclusive. They, they, they work best when they work together. Now, when we look at other types of transportation that are electrified, that is kind of more, I would say, towards the middle of the pyramid. So electric vehicles, electric bikes. There was actually, honestly, a study that just came out of, I think it was a university in Vienna or in Austria, no, in Zurich, uh, Zurich University, uh, mentioned the carbon footprint and impact of shared kick scooters and shared um, uh, micromobility. And those even have a certain impact on the environment too that is not quite as positive as what we thought before meaning that personal owned e-scooters or kick scooters whatever term we use are a bit more green and have a bit less of a carbon footprint than the shared scooters provided by private companies that have to balance they have to reposition they have to charge the vehicle the uh, scooters throughout the city so there's some externalities, shall we say, with this whole kind of shared mobility offer that needs to be considered when we look at that kind of pyramid of decarbonization. And it's been at least studied by uh, the University in Zurich that they might not be as clean as what we thought before. So it's just, it's, um, you know, food for thought. Really? So the last thing I want to talk about is what we can do as individuals to both influence public transportation, micromobility, and then do our fair share as people who use transportation. What do you think that would be the best way of all of us becoming involved? Well, let, let me speak to the American audience here. Uh, certainly uh, get active, get active politically, get active in advocacy groups, and really promote uh, nonprofits at the grassroots level that are trying to promote active transportation as well as tactical urbanism, because all the action is happening at the local and neighborhood level. That's how it works in the US. It's not going to happen top down at the federal government. It's not even gonna probably happen at the state level. It's gonna happen at the local level. And some of the most interesting projects and uh, interventions we're seeing are done by local consortiums, as well as nonprofits and public-private partnerships that are testing out more of a permanence in open streets, in implementing parklets, and in implementing uh, safer environments for uh, active transportation so that we can basically connect our bike lane networks throughout cities. We can better segregate uh, bikes from general traffic and general purpose lanes. And then look at uh, quick fix measures. There's really some interesting architecture and engineering firms across the US that are looking at uh, not quick fix, but the term is quick build. And these are very low cost measures that require minimal approval by local city departments of transportation that can even be proposed by local citizens or with the help of advocacy groups or engineering firms that can deliver quick wins in terms of real um, safer environments and then provide for, uh, you know, in an urban landscape that makes walking and cycling a, a real viable option. Because again, 
uh, safety on our streets is a huge concern now. Many cities are not aligning with the um, policy goals for Vision Zero. We're seeing a real uptick in fatalities for pedestrians and cyclists in 2021 in my home city of Los Angeles and many other cities. So mass fatalities. So we're actually going backwards in terms of the direction we need to go in, in terms of making the um, right of way and uh, I would say streets safer for active transportation. So start local, work with advocacy groups, grassroots, that's where the action is done. And I think that if enough people can do their fair share, we'll see some uh, you know, in- interesting outcomes you know, come, coming down the road soon. Well, this has just been a wonderful conversation. How can listeners find out more about your work? So listeners can find me on either LinkedIn or on um, Twitter at Scott Cities First. So S-C-O-T-T-C-I-T-I-E-S, one S-T, so Scott Cities First. So you can find me there. Or you can find information on our website, which is assistobe.no. So A-S-I-S-T-O-B-E. Well, thank you so much for taking time to talk with me today. I know you're uh, you're a little later in the day than I am, I'm, <laughs> <laughs> but you know you're having a pretty sunny day, probably, right? I'm not complaining. I'm not. I can't. You're right. Exactly. Thank you so much. I hope we get to talk thank again, you, Diane. I appreciate it. Bye bye. Scott Shepard joined me from his offices in Lisbon, Portugal. For more information on Scott and Assist to Be you can log on to assistobe, A-S-I-S-T-O-B-E dot N-O. And my thanks to Scott for taking so much time to talk with me. On Wednesday, I hope you'll join me for a second episode this week when we talk with the executive editor of Roller Magazine, Ian Cleverly. From soup to nuts, we hear about Roller, Ian's thoughts on the 2022 racing season, and so much more. So much more that it deserved its own episode. In the meantime, check out our blog, OutspokenCyclist.com, for a synopsis of each episode accompanied by photos and links. And subscribe to the podcast on your favorite app. I hope you have a great few days. Until next time, please stay safe and stay well. And remember, there is always time for a ride. Bye-bye. Joining us today on The Outspoken Cyclist with Diane Jenks. We welcome your thoughts and contributions on our Facebook page, or visit OutspokenCyclist.com to leave a comment on any episode. We will be back next week with new guests, topics, conversations, and news from the world of cycling. Subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app and you'll never miss an episode. The Outspoken Cyclist is a copyrighted production of DBL Promotions with the assistance of WJCU-FM Cleveland, a service of John Carroll University. Thanks again for listening, ride safely, and we'll see you next week.